1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Books in Literary Studies, um, a channel of the New Books Network. Um, I'm Britt Edelin, your host, and today I'm joined by my guest, Danielle Herskowitz. Herskowitz, I, I knew I was going to do it. Um, hello, Daniel, welcome. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so today we are going to be talking about your new book, um, Heidegger and His Jewish Reception, which is was published by Cambridge University Press. Um, it was a great book, and um, previous listeners of my podcast, or at least the ones that I've done, know that Heidegger is a very important thinker, and I I do a lot of work with him. So this was a really interesting book for me. But I think you you juggle so many different topics, and it's it's a Applicable book to a lot of different studies, and I'm sure we'll we'll think about that. Um, but before we get into talking about the book, um, I can I want to give your little introduction. So, um, you are a, a career research fellow in Jewish studies at Wolfson College, the, the University of Oxford. Prior to this, you were um, the Stanley A. and Barbara B. Robin Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Department of Religion um, at Columbia University. And your, your research interests include uh, modern theological and philosophical exchanges between Judaism and Christianity, as well as on secularization, nationalism, technology, and translation. And these are all topics that are coming out in this book. And I, I hope that we can talk about a few of them, um, at least in our conversation. Um, but before we do, um, I, I'm going to start out with my first question, which is, can you give us a little introduction to yourself as well as how you came to writing this book.
2: Yes, well, um, thank you for the introduction. Um, well, I have always been very interested in uh, questions of philosophy and religion and their intersection, um, mainly Judaism and Christianity, mainly of the modern per- period, but but not only. Um, and, well, just th- the, the things that, I was interested in uh repeatedly led me to this philosopher Martin Heidegger who um is as you said a, a very important philosopher um but also a very controversial one and um he's controversial for for many different reasons uh but perhaps the main reason uh that he's such a contested figure is that um he, he was a member of the Nazi party uh, for 12 years, from 1933 till 1945, um, and there's a sense in which the entire reception of his philosophy afterwards um, is, is colored by this political affiliation. And there's just a tremendous amount of work written on his Nazism, the relationship between his Nazism and his philosophy. Um, and, and that actually was not the, the topic that was most interesting to me. So when I was constantly led to Heidegger, um, and when I would, uh, approach Heidegger and think of what, you know, what Jewish reception of Heidegger would look like, um, what, what constantly, um, I, I discovered in my readings is that it will, it would be a great mistake to think about Heidegger's reception, Heidegger's Jewish reception only through the very minimal um, and limited lens of his political affiliation and his Nazism and the question of his anti-Semitism. So um, that basically led me to think, what if I look at this question of um, Heidegger's philosophy, Heidegger's Jewish reception, not from the perspective of what Heidegger might have thought about Jews, the question of his anti-Semitism, the question of his Nazism, but rather from the other, from the other side, as it were, and what Jews or Jewish thinkers thought of Heidegger and his philosophy. And this really just opened up this, this huge world, um, an endless amount of texts and perspectives and thinkers that could have been addressed under this um, you know general, Uh, topic of interest, but, um, but that's what ultimately led me to writing this book. The, 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 the thought that um, Heidegger is this fascinating thinker with that could, you know, his thought could be taken to many different directions. And if you want to approach his thinking through the, the religious perspective, um, what that might look like if the religion you, you take as the Jewish
0: perspective. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I think that's a really interesting introduction. Um, I So I've studied Heidegger a lot in a lot of different contexts. And one of the things people always ask me about when I say that Heidegger is, you know, one of the most important thinkers to me is it's always the question of the Nazi um, or the Nazism right. or the anti-Semitism. Um, and it's something that can't be discounted, but I always talk about how, on the one hand, you can't get around Heidegger if you are doing philosophy, or if you study philosophy in the 20th century, you just, you just have yeah. to deal with him in some way. But on the other hand, it's, while the Nazism is not something you can discount, I think it's always more interesting to engage with him rather than just say, you know, he was a Nazi, we shouldn't read him. Um, there are much more interesting critiques, um, and I think we'll get into those, especially, um, with Levinas, who, who was a student of his, who was who takes him up and then kind of does away with him, or goes past him, or transcends him in some way. Um, but I wanna, I wanna get a little, maybe a bit of a, to use a Heideggerian term, a grounding um, in in Heidegger. First, so he was he studied theology. Um, uh, I think he wrote his his thesis on psychologism and in neo Thomism and neo content or yeah, Neo-Kantianism, um, and on Duns Scotus. So he has a he has a huge background in theological thinking, but his main project is doing away with um and Christianity and the the idea of God as positing or cementing being. Can you say a little bit more about Heidegger's relationship to Christianity um, and how we might have to think about it in relation to secularization um, or the secularization of Heidegger um, and how you're going into that conversation here?
2: Well, um, well, one of the things that I uh, discovered while, while, while doing, making the research for, for this book was that, could you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, One of the things I discovered while researching for this book is that the Jewish reception of Heidegger is intimately linked to Heidegger's relationship with Christianity. And um, part, an important part of the Jewish reception of Heidegger, the way they approached his philosophy and the way they responded to it, was um, related to elements and layers of Christian thought that was identified in his philosophy. And therefore, the question of Heidegger's relationship with Christianity um, is an important one. Heidegger, as you mentioned, um, was trained in Christian theology. He was born in a, uh, a Catholic home, which is important um, and somewhat unusual in the uh, tradition of German philosophy. Um, and later on, he, he converted to Protestantism and then ultimately left Christianity as a whole, but but he was well aware of the fact that um, his Christian, you know, in in Heidegger's terminology, his Christian facticity, his 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 upbringing in Christian faith, really colored his thought and informed it and conditioned it in ways that um, were very uh, difficult for him to just shake off and. I mean, this is relatively well known now that the, the years throughout the 1920s, right? His, his great book, Sein und Zeit, Being in Time, was published in 1927. And throughout the, the 20s, um, as he was developing the ideas that would later, um, be formulated in Being in Time, um, he was reading Christian texts, uh, very intensely. And developing his ideas through readings of Augustine, Luther, Kierkegaard, um, Paul, uh, etc., and and you could really identify a development of these ideas how they they he finds them or begins to develop them in the early twenties as he's engaging these Christian texts, and then you you could see them in a non-Christian context are uh, formulized as this ontological analysis of of human existence, of Dasein in being in time. Um but at all times Heidegger would insist that um and, and rightly so that he is not doing uh, theology at all and that in fact what he's trying to do, he's trying to offer a fundamental ontology that may ground um you know Christian accounts of human existence, but does not presuppose any Christian assumptions, and um, is rather detached from the entire realm of theology. So Heidegger would say, "I am doing philosophy, and um, if Christian theology wants to use the categories of human existence that I am offering in order to understand the ontic example of Christian existence, then by all means." Um, but what I am offering here in my philosophy is not informed and not conditioned um, and should not be read as such by Christianity. Um, And as his thought continues to develop, um, he he becomes very critical of Christianity and of uh, Christian theology as he takes it to be wedded to metaphysics, and um, basically something that needs to be destructed and um, entire manner of thinking that needs to be um, engaged in a very critical way in order for a new, different manner of thinking to become possible. So his Heidegger's relationship with Christianity, on the one hand, Christianity is always there, um, not only because he grew um, and uh, grew up in a Christian context and was informed by its categories, but because it looms in the background as the constant uh, framework that he tries to overcome.
0: That's a really great way of explaining it. And it makes me think of, um, so Derrida in his conversation or his engagement with Heidegger on, entitled His Geschlecht Series, he talks about how Heidegger yeah. tries to, um, neutralize or neuter um, Dasein and make it asexual or um, sexless uh, or or de-sexed. And so that it's it's this neutral, it's able to be universal, but it doesn't take in the particularities, which Heidegger would call ontic um, rather than ontological characteristics of like modern identities. Um, And I think something that you're bringing out in this is that Heidegger also try, maybe makes an attempt to neuter, neutralize or neutralize um, the Christianity of his thinking um, and I think it, what's also interesting is that when I think of Heidegger I immediately think of the Greeks who were obviously yeah. not Christians they were they were pagan in a certain sense they were uh, polytheistic um, and it, that comes out a lot but you know Heidegger's so also indebted to Hildeline or or other thinkers and He's a, he's, the Christian overtones are immediate. Um, yeah. If you know a lot. And I that. mean, I, w-
2: I would add to this that um, there's a sense in which Heidegger invites the, the you know, Christian theologians, Catholics, Protestants, um, and others w- were and are still attracted to Heidegger's thinking because they identify so much of their own tradition in his thought, and there's a sense in which he, he's constantly um, re-Christianized, as it were, and adopted um, into Christian theology, or back into Christian theology, depends on you know how, how you approach him. Um, and 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 there's a sense in which he invites, it. he does invoke these terms that um, have Christian roots to them and i I read somewhere someone put it very nicely. Someone said that heidegger um offers a theological itch, but does not allow us to scratch it, something like that um and and he definitely does that right so in in being in time where he offers this existential um analytic of dasein uh he he offers these categories that have. Um, strong theological resonances. He speaks of shuld, of guilt, he speaks of fallenness, um, and 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 stuff like that. And later on, he'll speak of the gods and of the holy. Um, and I mean it, it, throughout the 20th century, uh, there were a lot of readers of Heidegger who said, Well, yeah, he he has this, right? Adorno says he has a theological aura uh to his philosophy. And um, Karl Lovit says that one of the reasons that Heidegger was so attractive to so many of um, his generation was that he offered this um, godless theology, um, where you know, you could carry on uh, thinking about sacredness and experiencing the world as a site of holiness without having the, the, the traditional Christian strings attached um, and this entire complicated relationship with Christianity where he clearly rejects it and criticizes it um, but also demonstrates um, some kind of debt to it is 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 a very um is is part of the Jewish reception of his thought because they don't only these Jewish thinkers that I deal with in the book, um, don't only focus on his philosophy, but, um, in their reading of his philosophy also constantly are aware of what they see as, um, you know, remnants of Christian layers to it. So through their engagement with his philosophy, they're reading him, but they're also engaging with,
0: um, with Christianity. So now moving into the more Jewish reception part of the book um, that's opened up in your first chapter. Um, I want to ask about, so your first chapter, or not your first chapter, I think the second chapter is on um, early Christian or early Jewish reception to Zion und Zeit and Martin Heidegger's works and how it creates this Christian anthropology. Can you elaborate on how Heidegger or how the Jewish thinkers received this and how they're outlining the, the Christian overtones or the Christianity within his anthropology and how, how does Judaism interact with this and come into play and where they're, how are these critiques related to a, to a Jewishness of the thinker? Yeah.
2: Um, well, I think the best way to, to answer that question is maybe to offer um, a brief historical background of what was going on at the time um i think that that could could be a good segue to understand um why these thinkers are reading Heidegger the way they are and what in his thought was you know bothering them in a sense so so um in the chapter that you're you're referring to i focus on the, some of the early jewish readings of of being in time so we're talking about um late 1920s 1930s um, approaches to Heidegger's being in time. And during this time, so we're talking about interwar period in Germany. Um, there is, well, this period stages, what can be terms of kind of generational clash between, uh, two different approaches, two different frameworks of, of, of thinking um, of of religion, of philosophy, of culture, of politics, um, where this the, the generation of of the time, um, the younger generation, was seeking to um, to distance itself from the previous generation, um, and even rebel and try to reimagine and reformulate uh, what it means to be Jewish. So if the previous generation um was mainly neo kantian or or rather um neo kantianism was was the reigning philosophical framework um it was um it 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 upheld uh, rationalism and um there was this this synthesis between kantianism and jewish and, and judaism um so this new generation tried to rethink what Jewishness is so. So the great figure of the previous generation was Hermann Cohen, who tried, who offered this really impressive synthesis between um, what Judaism stands for, the ideas, the ideals of Judaism, and um, he was, you know, very uh, strongly informed by Kant, Kant's rationalism, Kant's ethics, um, and this was perceived. Uh, by by this new generation, um, as as selling out Judaism, as as re as as formulating it in foreign um, f- foreign uh, frameworks or templates, and what, what what they tried to do was was uh, was rejuvenate Judaism by by rethinking it um, along more existential experiential. Um, line. So, so there was this anti-liberal sentiment to this, uh, generation. And, um, they were looking for what does this, how could I think about Judaism not as a set of, I, you know, uh, detached ideas, but rather as something that concerns me, as something that, um, is demands of me something In my historical, actual, concrete existence, Um, and part this was part of a a, a general rethinking of the generation, Um, and Heidegger was part of this um, generation rebellion, um, generational rebellion as well, and this um, this basically meant that Heidegger would be often. Um, a person that Jewish thinkers would look at in order to try to formulate what a Jewish existence would look like from a philosophical point of view. So um so well i I'll, I'll I'll rephrase that if possible. Um one of the main things that um, Jewish thinkers in this generation um, wanted to do was offer an authentic, version of what Judaism and Jewishness means and they saw the previous generation's answer to be inauthentic they found it too christian too liberal too middle class too detached of um of their concrete actual historical existence and they wanted a to well to formulate a version of Jewishness that was not detached that was you know addressed their actual existence and this was well a parallel um dynamic was taking place in christian theology at at the time and you know in just general philosophy um and heidegger was part of this heidegger was the main spokesperson of this uh strand of thinking of we are we're not looking for detached philosophical systems we're looking for concrete existential Answers to the questions um, of of human existence. So Heidegger's philosophy presented itself as a well as a possible address for Jewish thinkers to consult and um, use in order to formulate a authentic account of Jewish Jewish existence. And many indeed turned to Heidegger. The problem with Heidegger, they quickly found, was that it was unclear to them whether his philosophy really could offer them what they wanted. And what they wanted was um, an analysis of human existence that they felt can apply to Jewish existence, to the particularity of Jewish existence. And that's what Heidegger, you know, at least presented himself himself as as offering. He said, I'm offering an ontological account of Dasein and it gives itself to whatever ontic instance. Um, But when these Jewish thinkers opened being in time and read what Heidegger uh, wrote there, they felt that they constantly um, ran up against these, Ideas, not only terminology, but also content that sounded very Christian to them. Either in terms, you know, just speaking of, um, you know, Heidegger speaks, as I mentioned, of this, this guilt or this debt that Dasein always has, um, you know, regardless of any concrete action, Dasein comes into the world, as it were, um, indebted, uh, or the idea that, um, Dasein's existence is towards death, um, which Jewish thinkers and Christian thinkers as well they said well I, I we're familiar with this um idea and with this terminology. We're familiar with this from Kierkegaard, from Luther, from the New Testament. These ideas that Heidegger is offering, these so you know you know supposedly neutral analysis of human existence, actually sounds like it is informed by um, a certain religious tradition that um, is not neutral, right? And then these thinkers um, had to ask themselves, what? how do we approach these seemingly Christian um, layers in Heidegger's philosophy? Now, no one would say, they all agree that Heidegger was offering a secular account. But um, as I show in this in, in chapter three of, of my book, The question of secularization um, emerged as very important for the Jewish reception of Heidegger because they would agree that what Heidegger was offering was a secular or secularized understanding of human existence. But the question is, how exactly should we understand this process of secularization? Should we understand it as simply a reduction of whatever past theological layers were there and therefore perhaps the origin of these ideas and this co- these con- this content um can find you know the origin is in christian tradition but in its um manifestation in heidegger in, in, in its application in heidegger's analysis of dasein these layers no longer play any role and it's simply a secular account and for them that would be enough for it to be able to be reappropriated and used for Jewish existence or should we understand secularization as a process in which um, the the theological charge of these uh, terms is is negated but still something is you know something remains something remains of its Christian um, past and therefore even in Heidegger's philosophical analysis of of Dasein, um, what he's offering is not simply a secular account, but a secularized account. That is an account of human existence that is in some way still colored by its Christian past. And for many Jewish thinkers, that meant that insofar as Heidegger's philosophy is conditioned by Christianity, it cannot really be used um, appropriately to offer an understanding of Jewish existence. And what I show in this chapter is basically a, a, a host, a long list of thinkers who who targeted and, and mentioned these um, examples of Christian sounding terms or ideas that sound like they, um, you know, that they are rooted in Christian tradition. And say, wait a second, this Heidegger's, Analysis of death, Heidegger's analysis of Dasein's fallenness. Um, these all sound to these. These are all actually Christian notions, secularized Christian notions, and therefore, it, this it simply won't do for someone who's trying to offer an authentic Jewish account.
0: That was a great answer, um, and it brings me to a question that I, I want to skip a chapter and and or maybe two. I don't. I don't know. Um, and go to. A question of Strauss and Leo Strauss. Um, So you're talking about Leo Strauss and how, um, and I'll let you maybe give a little introduction to him and his his thinking, um, and perhaps his relationship to Heidegger and and also uh, Schmidt, who I think is an important interlocutor for the two and how they would relate. Um, But how Strauss is doing something that might be different than what other Jewish philosophers are doing with Heidegger in the sense that, you know, in, the fir- in that third chapter, there's an idea that, you know, Heidegger, we, we came to Heidegger looking for something and we didn't find it. Um, but Strauss notes that, you know, maybe the way out, even though he represents a danger, he also gives us a way out of the danger, um, You write That he offers the theoretical breakthrough that directs us out of crisis. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how Strauss formulated this and and maybe what how Heidegger himself is can be both the danger and the way out um almost like a a pharmacon the poison as well as the cure. Hmm. Yes.
2: Um so Leo Strauss was um a well a, a a well-known and important political philosopher theorist uh who was born in Germany um studied With Heidegger, he wasn't in the close circle of Heidegger's students, but he studied with Heidegger um, and was well one of those one of those of Heidegger's students who were um, completely taken by Heidegger, and who, in a sense, their entire intellectual career afterwards um, is, in one way or another, a constant grappling with this encounter, um, with, with their encounter with Heidegger's, with the, the person and his philosophy. Um, Strauss, like a number of, of Heidegger's other students, was um, completely shattered by Heidegger um, in 1933, where Heidegger joined the Nazi party, um, and tried to rethink his approach to Heidegger in light of the fact that he believed that Heidegger's philosophy And politics were closely intertwined. So um, Strauss Strauss has this great quote where he says something along the lines of, um, "Only a great thinker or or, only a great philosopher could help us in our um, in our present uh, uh, predicament." But but the only problem is that the only great thinker we have. Is Heidegger, and Heidegger for Strauss represented the great crisis of thought. So that was the, the 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 bind that Strauss identified in the contemporary moment in modern philosophy as a whole. That modern philosophy needs a great thinker, but the problem is the only great thinker, one of the only great thinkers, um, modern philosophy has to offer, is the most problematic one. Is the one who embodies the great crises of the time, which he saw as um, historicism and nihilism. Now, Strauss, Strauss's project, um, you know, in a nutshell, um, was an attempt to uh, revive his understanding of political philosophy, which was basically to be able to approach or rethink or ask the question again, the question of the, the great life, the question of, of um, how one, what is the good? How, how should we live? Um, and this Strauss believed cannot be asked anymore in the context of modern philosophy because modern philosophy believes that it has answered conclusively all the important questions of philosophy and therefore could progress. It could move on to answer different questions. Um, this he believed was connected to the historicist framework the, the the idea that um that specific truths are relevant to specific historical um uh, backgrounds and periods and that there isn't some kind of enduring natural truth that um would correlate to eternal questions that are constantly asked and constantly stay open and Strauss wanted to step outside or overcome what he believed was this, this crisis of thought. Um, and he also believed that insofar as we have this historicist uh, mind frame, um, we can't reach truth. Truth is relativized and therefore um, you can't really establish a a, a a stable ethics because you don't have You you have resort to a foundation to truth, actually, and therefore he has this um, rather uh, immediate connection between between historicism, relativism, and nihilism, and that works very well with him um, in his analysis of Heidegger. He reads Heidegger as this radical historicist. That is, he claims that Heidegger believes that um, being reveals itself differently in different epochs, in different times. And therefore, there is no eternal truth. There's only historicized um, revelations of being. And therefore, Heidegger relativizes truth. Heidegger is a nihilist. He doesn't really actually believe... His truth is relativized to historical periods. Um, And the fact that Heidegger joined the Nazi party uh, demonstrates the fact that he's a nihilist. But um, instead of simply... You know, um rejecting Heidegger and just saying he is a nihilist, he is the worst uh thinker that we could possibly engage with and just do away with him um Strauss actually found in heidegger um the a philosophical framework that can gesture or signal towards the possibility of overcoming it so um Strauss has this image that he he offers in a bunch of different places um. Where it says, you know, the 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 Platonic cave is is the state of philosophy, right? Philosophy tries to transition from opinion to knowledge, and that's a very difficult thing. Philosophy is difficult, but modern philosophy makes this difficult task even more difficult because of historicism. It basically doesn't allow itself to move from opinion to knowledge because it doesn't accept the possibility of 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 knowledge, which Strauss understands. As you know, enduring truths, um, and therefore, modern philosophy is the second cave under the first cave of Plato. So, only to begin or to begin anew the the taxing um, job of philosophy, we have to climb out of the second cave and into the first cave. Now, for Strauss, Heidegger was the quintessential, you know, thinker who, um, you know, carved the second cave, because he was this radical historicist. But he also believed that Heidegger could offer, as it were, the ladder from the second cave into the first cave. And the reason for that is that Heidegger um, offered a critique of modern, of, of metaphysics as a whole. And Heidegger believed that um, a a new approach, a more attuned approach to being can be achieved if we, in some way, reapproach um, Greek thought and identify in Greek thought and pre Socratic thought a pristine moment of thinking before the emergence of metaphysics. And engaging with this, critically engaging with this um, moment of thought, could offer a, a constructive resource for thinking forward. Um, and overcoming metaphysics in this way, and Strauss did not necessarily um, want to do the same thing in the same manner that Heidegger did, but Strauss identified in um in the the possibility that Heidegger offered to return to the Greeks to go back and try to rethink through um, resources of the past and through the tradition of philosophy, Strauss found that to be a, a very constructive way of, of going forward as well. So there's a, in a sense, there's a sense in which, um, Strauss parallels Heidegger in his critique of modern philosophy, that this cannot go on further. We have to rethink philosophy. Um, he parallels Heidegger in the sense that he thinks that returning is in some sense um, a way forward. And he also identifies um, Greek, uh, Greek philosophy, ancient Greece as, as a possible way, a possible um, resource for thinking. But unlike Heidegger, Strauss believes that it's Athens and Jerusalem that are in this constant confrontation. So there's two different ways of uh, answering the, the great question, the great philosophical question, the great question of political philosophy of what is the great life. There's Athens, which he believes, um, you know, represented in, in, in Greek philosophy and, and philosophy, which is unaided reason and, um, and thinking philosophically, and Jerusalem, which for Strauss represents um, revelation and um, modern, um, not modern, um, Jewish monotheism. Um and reviving this confrontation was what Strauss thought philosophy needed most. So, you know, this is a long way of answering your question: how, why is Heidegger um both so problematic and also potentially um uh the person, the philosopher who who signals towards um overcoming the 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 philosophical um dead end that he himself represents is the idea that traditional philosophy, that approaching in a new way, tradition, the tradition of philosophy can offer a way out of the contemporary crisis.
0: Happy price got your happy price price line yeah that was a another great response I think it, it it calls back to Heidegger's theorization or his theory or his praxis of destruction destruction um, which um, people might be familiar with in uh, deridian deconstruction that's how deconstruction uh, is how Derrida um, translates it um, and it's this Heidegger talks about um, almost he uses almost an archaeological um, metaphor and says like to we uh, all these layers of sediment have built up over the history of philosophy. And we must brush them away. We must destroy them. We must destruct them and get back to something so we can build from there again. Um, and you really talk about how Strauss is doing that move to Heidegger. He's he's going back to the original of the original. Um, and I, I I'm glad you brought up. Um, Athens and Jerusalem, because it, it brings me to my next question, which um, is about Buber, and I, I want to also bring this towards Levinas, so have that in mind. Um, but you talk about how Buber, um, uh, Martin Buber, who, who wrote "I Thou, ich du, um, stages a confrontation with Heidegger in the sense that he he wants to talk about the about dialogue and about um, how we're always with the other and we're always in communication with. Um, you know, thou the the ultimate vow of God, but also the the vows of um, other people, and he stages this as a, a conversation or a dialogue between um, what you 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 identify as generally Greek monological philosophy and a Jewish dialogical alternative. Um, so I want to ask about about how Buber is thinking about dialogue and how that kind of upsets the ipsaity or the selfness or the solipsism of Heidegger as well as what it means to what you call dwell prophetically in in relation to Heidegger's dwelling
2: poetically. Yeah. So, so throughout the book, I show that this paradigm of Athens and Jerusalem um, is, is, is a thread that runs um, in, in a lot of these Jewish engagements. With Heidegger, not only Strauss. So Strauss is, you know, trademarked um this idea of Athens and, and Jerusalem, but but it's it's a general, it's a formal paradigm. So basically anyone could insert whatever content they want into what Greek is and what um you know Jewish is or what or what Athens is, what Jerusalem is, whether or not Jerusalem includes Judaism and Christianity, or only Judaism. Does Christian is Christianity um Athens? Is it? You know, somewhere in the middle. So that's part of part of the engagement with Heidegger, is um, implicitly also offering a construction of Athens and Jerusalem, vis-à-vis philosophy and secularism, and vis-à-vis Christianity and where Judaism, as these thinkers understand it, um, is to be positioned. And Strauss Strauss wants to offer. Um, He he wants to revive this confrontation between Athens and Jerusalem. And for him, the two are, uh, you can't reduce one to the other. They are um, separated and detached and they could challenge each other, but they're really in a a confrontation. Um, Strauss saw himself, I think it's fair to say, as a citizen of Athens, as it were, but he saw that Jerusalem constitutes... A, a constant challenge and threat to the Athens way of thinking, as it were, and that's where thoughts—that's um, that's the fuel for philosophy. Constantly having to deal with the challenge of of Jerusalem. Um, Buber has a different understanding of of this Athens and Jerusalem. Um, Buber perceives himself as channeling. This Jewish insight, or rather, an insight that he finds, um, has been articulated in uh, Jewish history in its in its most um, in, in its most pristine or best form, um, and it's what he called the, the dialogical principle. Um, and and Buber's version of Jewish history. Um, so for him, Jesus. Is is an important milestone in Jewish history, um, a, a manifestation, a really an embodiment of this dialogical principle. And Buber follows a long line of Jewish thinkers who appropriate um, Jesus as as a model Jew, um, and and this is part of his reading of of Jewish history and of his, the 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 dialogical. Um impulse animating it. And for Buber, the the idea is um, that what is most meaningful uh, happens in between. Um, Encounters are our our existence in the world is is an interaction. It's an encounter with things that are not us. And we could only truly become ourselves. When and through the encounter with another, so this encounter with another um, could be with God, could be with fellow human beings, it could be with objects in the world, um, and he perceives himself. He, he he offers a dialogical philosophy in the sense that we are constantly in an engagement um, and encountering uh, other other people, other things in the world, and um that is how authenticity um could that's, that's how authenticity emerges um and and this idea of of um that logical existence Buber felt was under threat in um, modernity because of a lot of different reasons technology the rise of the rise of science um the the, the general alienation of uh, of modern culture and what Buber wanted to do was to revive this idea of of encounter, of be, in between, of I and thou, of dialogue. And he felt that Heidegger's philosophy was channeling a long tradition. Um that he also had different different terms for it, of uh, you know, a tradition that um celebrated or espoused monologue. Um, he called Gnosticism, um, basically a, a, a tradition of thought that was um, closed off to the other person that um, treated, perceived human existence as one that was closed off to fellow humans and to God. For Buber, though, too, are, are, are intimately connected. And in his engagement with, with Heidegger, what he tried to do, he constantly offered his dialogical philosophy as an alternative to what he saw as Heidegger's monological philosophy. So his, now this is a, this is a constant critique. Throughout the 20th century, there's this idea that the account of human existence that Heidegger offers, um, penetrating and original as it may be, ultimately only offers a solipsistic, analysis of human existence. In other words, Heidegger does not offer a, an account of intersubjectivity. Dasein, The Dasein that he um, portrays in the pages of Being in Time is one who is enclosed in its own existence and can't really account for the existence of another person. Um now this is something that this is a critique that from the very beginning. So Karl Lovitz wrote his Habilitation in 1928. Okay, so a year after um Being in Time was published, where Lovitz uh tries to develop this idea of mit and undersign, so being with another, um, as some kind of corrective to Heidegger's idea of mit sein, this this idea that um we are always already with other people, and our world is always a share wor- shared world, and always determined by the existence of other people. Um, but this 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 critique of Heidegger's solipsism, or his his monologi- monologism, or his inability to account for the other person or for intersubjectivity, is one that I mean. Buber says Go Garden, um, Scheler, Lovitz, Hannah Arendt. Has a version of this, Levi philosophy. You know, if we want to really reduce it to this one idea, is basically that Heidegger cannot account for otherness. So it's a version of this critique um, that Heidegger cannot account for, intersubjectivity for the other person. Um, and again, there's an ethical layer to this, that his his endorsement of Nazism reflects the fact that Heidegger cannot establish Heidegger's philosophy and also Heidegger, the person, the philosopher, cannot establish a robust ethics. Um, So so what Buber constantly does is read Heidegger as offering a philosophy of monologue, a philosophy of um, a a human being who is closed up onto itself and cannot uh, encounter, cannot really meet other people and cannot really meet God. And the result is an an impoverished and Buber would also believe dangerous philosophy. And what he tries to do is offer his philosophy as an alternative to Heidegger's and say, well, Heidegger says this and what I will draw on the same exact sources. And that could be Hauden's poetry, that could be um, Heraclitus, or that could be, you know, the same German philosophers who um, Heidegger engages with and offer a different analysis that would present a philosophy that champions, that celebrates encounter and meeting and engagements. And it could be- actually account for a human existence that um, that is is more true to the world as we live it, right? Right. Um, and Buber believes that he's channeling that this is Jewish thought. This is prophetic thinking. The prophets are the, the, the exemplar for, for Buber of dialogical of existence. Um, and basically, in, in the way I read Buber's critical engagement with Heidegger is that he um, poses as an alternative to Heidegger's idea of poetic existence of existing in a, in the world in a, through poesis as a, as a, in a poetic manner that is attuned to, um, to being and allowing being to be, and just being open to how being um, reveals itself to us rather than trying to impose ourselves and to coerce being, to be what we want it to be. Um, yeah. And in that way to discover, um, the world as a site of holiness and of sacredness. And Heidegger calls this um, the return of the gods. Um, And Buber would share that impulse. Buber would say, um, yes, we need to recover and reattune ourselves to the world in a way that will allow us to reveal its sacredness and its holiness, Um, but that cannot be done through Heidegger's philosophy. That could only be done through my philosophy, um, which takes as its source and as its cue of, uh, you know, Jewish tradition of uh, this dialogical principle that Heidegger, that Buber finds in the biblical Hebrew prophets.
0: So you bring up something, I mean, you're bringing up a lot of really interesting points. And I think something that I want to get to is a discussion of, of Levinas in, in a certain way. And, Um, So Levinas, you quote him at the beginning of the book um, saying that Heidegger is maybe the most important um, thinker or philosopher of certainly the century, maybe of the millennia. Um, And I think that's something that we've been grappling with this whole conversation throughout your whole book. I think also as like a philosophical community of readers. Um, But Levinas does something radically different. And I'd love to hear you talk more about it in the sense that what he's doing is he's putting ethics first um, he's putting it's or ethics as our before ontology and that's very obviously a critique of heidegger um and i'm wondering just can you talk about how um levinas is critiquing heidegger um at the same time he can think of him as you know the, the great philosopher um and how this is related to a jewish reception um specifically
2: yes um so Levinas, as you said, um, was it's it, it's actually pretty remarkable to read one philosopher to read what Levinas writes about Heidegger. I mean, it's rare to read a philosophy a philosopher speak so highly of another philosopher. It just Levinas, when he when he when he talks about Heidegger, he he, it's just it, it it's just um you know. Heidegger is the mo- a genius, the most brilliant philosophy, you know the Montblana philosopher. this is once in a millennia. Um, and at the same time, Levinas sees Heidegger's philosophy to be um, philosophy of Hitlerism as as, as he, he you know the title of, a, of an essay Levinas writes in 1930s um, and as uh, you know, fundamentally immoral, um, totalitarian in its essence. And and this is part of of, of well why reading Levinas is, is fascinating and difficult. Um and it's also why Levinas, like Strauss, like others, was grappling with Heidegger um throughout his entire life. So Levinas as well was a Jewish student of of uh of Heidegger and he too formulated his philosophy. Um, with Heidegger, through Heidegger, and against Heidegger. Um, His main critique was that Heidegger's philosophy um, is basically fixated on being. It's focused on ontology. And in Levinas' understanding, everything else in Heidegger's world derives from the approach to being. And when philosophy takes that move, the the approach to the other person to the concrete actual other person um, will always go through being so the, the philosophy through that in this prism cannot really engage with the other person because it's it's first it's ultimately focused on this abstract category of of being and again heidegger's nazism plays into this and what heidegger what levinas tries to offer is um an understanding of philosophy or an account of philosophy that um, doesn't put ontology first, doesn't first um, look to being and then approach everything through the category of being, but begin from what he calls ethics. That is the the responsibility towards the concrete other um, and and build from that, begin from Ethics responsibility, the call of the other, and carry on doing philosophy from that starting point and and basically condition philosophy um, with ethics. And Levinas claims to be transmitting this Jewish, a a, a Jewish insight, a Jewish idea. He um, at some point claims that what he what his philosophy is, is a translation of Jewish knowledge into Greek thought. Um, when one reads his philosophical works in parallel to his uh, more straightforward Jewish works, his, his Talmudic writings, his essays on Jewish subjects, it's, it's, it's obvious that um, he's conveying the, the same ideas in both, in both registers. Um, and what Levinas, Claims to be doing is offering a Jewish corrective to Heidegger's ontological fixation. And Levinas would, would actually say, um, Heidegger is a representative of Western philosophy as a whole. This ontological fixation and this, um, the, the constant ignoring of otherness, um, is, is a feature a constant feature, an essential feature of philosophy from the very beginning. The idea that anything that is different, anything that is other, has to be um, co-opted, has to be um, appropriated into what he calls the same, into the knowable, into the familiar, into what we are able to identify. Um, That is a feature of Western thought, uh, Levinas will say. And the the idea of allowing otherness to remain in its otherness, not quickly trying to devour it and reduce its otherness into sameness is something that Levinas claims to find in, in, in Jewish tradition and tries to, he says, translate, I'm, I'm a, a bit critical of this metaphor of translation with Levinas, but he tries to offer it to Western thought as um as a, a contribution as and as a corrective to what he considers its totalitarian impulse, this idea that you know we're seeking for a totality, and anything new, anything other, we are going to subsume into the totality that we already acknowledge and we already recognize
0: yeah, I think Levinas's ethics are are something that I don't know I, I wish everybody was reading um, it, it feels especially pertinent to the moment to now to contemporary 80. um and I, I think you can't forget heidegger in in the levinas or his critique of him um, at least yeah what
2: I, what i try to do in my analysis of levinas and i'm and i'm really not the first one to point this out is that levinas's um, approach to heidegger is really um he constantly presents it as this um you know radical opposition as this dichotomy between Heidegger and his own thought, between otherness and sameness, between Western, the totalitarian impulse of Western philosophy and Levinas's philosophy of, of ethics and otherness. And what I try to show is that beyond the rhetoric of you know, dichotomous opposition, um, when, 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 you know, when you approach it with, put a little more critical pressure on it, as it were, um, it, it, it becomes immediately clear that Levinas um, is, is clearly dependent on Heidegger's philosophy. And not only that, but also that there is a sense in which he needs Heidegger's philosophy to, re, to remain as it is, to stay as it is, for his own philosophy to then disturb it as its otherness. So it's not a dichotomy between Levinas and Heidegger, as Levinas Likes to depict it, but rather much more of a dialectic, whereby Levinas tries to, you know, overcome, problematize Heidegger um, by being dependent on Heidegger, by establishing himself on Heidegger, and by always needing to constantly overcome and reestablish and overcome and reestablish Heidegger in order for Levinas's philosophy to remain the disruption that it, it wishes to be.
0: So I, I have one final question, um, which is, you know, wh- what are you thinking about now? What's, what's next? Do you have an, or anything already in the pipeline or, or what questions are you um, sitting with at the moment?
2: Yeah, so so
0: Heidegger is, is quicksand
2: in the sense that it's, it's, it's never ending and you could really be consumed um, by his thoughts and by its terminology and by um, and by his vast reception, so there's really a lot more that could be said um about Heidegger's Jewish reception, let alone his general reception um which is obviously ongoing um and I still have a few other other projects uh heidegger related um, in the pipeline but but i I look I'm looking forward to um, putting Heidegger on hold for a while um and and what I'm thinking about right now is trying to develop some of the, the thoughts that I had while writing the earlier chapters of this, of this uh, Heidegger book on, um, on existence philosophia, this idea, this philosophical turn towards existence and what its theological um, underpinnings might be and um, see how this existential turn in the beginning of the 20th century Um, draws on various revolutions or various um, intellectual dynamics that took place earlier in the 19th century um, vis-a-vis Martin Luther. So 19th century German Protestant theology, there was this um, robust return to Luther after Kant as this um, attempt to rethink Protestant theology and, and complete the Reformation and Kant opened the door to finally doing this. And this this, um, return to Luther um, allowed a refocus on the existential condition of of the believer, of the subject. And I I wanna look into how this return to Luther um, played itself out in Protestant thought and in Jewish thought and what stories Protestant thinkers, and Jewish thinkers tell themselves as to what what it is they're doing um, in reappropriating Luther um, in this modern post-Kantian guise. So that's the general gist of where my thoughts are right now.
0: Well, that sounds like just an incredibly interesting project. And, um, you know, if it turns into anything, I would love to have you back on the show and and talk more. Um, I'd love to be back. And, you know, leave Heidegger for a moment and think about something else. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Well, I want to say thank you for being on um, the show, for talking with us. Um, I'm sure people will get a lot out of this this episode. Thank you. Thank you. This was, it was great um, to be on the show. Um, So once again, um, this was Danielle um, Herskowitz. I got it right that time talking about his book. Um, Heidegger and his Jewish reception, which was published for um, by Cambridge University Press. Um, I'm your host, Britt Edelin, um, for the New Books Network. Thank you, as always, and until next time.
1: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?